Who is the most underrated actor of all time? It's Dolph Lundgren. Correct. Why? Well, because of his uh, spiky hair, yep. his ice-cold demeanor, and his big muscles. Absolutely. I must break you. Welcome to I Must Break This Podcast. This is the fan podcast celebrating the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. Hello and welcome back to I Must Break This Podcast, the fan podcast that takes an in-depth and chronological look at the films of Dolph Lundgren. Today we're taking a look at Lundgren's 18th film, 1998's Sweepers. In this socially conscious action thriller, Lundgren plays Christian Erickson, a humanitarian aid worker and expert in landmines, racing to stop the development of a new high-tech landmine being manufactured in Angola. Deep in the plains of Africa, a soldier's shattered past has turned him into a one-man army against terrorism. He was trained in the U.S. Special Forces. He's a real deal soldier of fortune. I need your help. The problem of landmines hasn't gotten any better since your little boy died. As the countdown to global crisis begins... Terrorists with top-secret technology... A high-tech killer has leveled the playing field. A new type of landmine, a smart mine. You're telling me that this thing is one of ours. Our future lies in the hands of the one man who can disarm the smart mine. It's gonna pop. Give me a count. Seven, six, five, It takes nerves of steel and the courage of a lion. They'll be gunning for you next. To be a sweeper. Trimark Home Video and New Image proudly present Dolph Lundgren in the explosive international thriller. Sweepers. You be a good boy. Daddy's going to work. Rated R. Joining me to chat this film today is Brenton Hasem, proprietor of the website All Out of Bubblegum, a website that is devoted to the action movies that we all love and enjoy. Brenton, thank you so much for joining me on this one today, man. Hey, no problem. Thanks for having me. Well, I know that this is this was probably not at the top of your list, but the fact that you own it, I think, makes you a an expert in a sense, because this is one of those films, I keep going back to this, but this is one of those films that Lundgren did around that period in the 90s that kind of went under the radar and unseen, unless, again, unless you were a, a huge fan and was following the guy's work, this is one of those films that was pretty much dumped on direct-to-video and would populate the, <laughs> the the VHS shelves back in the, uh, the VHS heyday. But for the most part, this is one of those ones that I think the general public has not seen. And so to, to meet someone else who says, yes, not only have I seen this film, but I own it, I think, <laughs> I think makes you yeah. uh, a guest that uh, is going to be coming back multiple times. So, <laughs> Well, I think... Part of it is, you know, I don't know what happened, but after about Joshua Tree, he om Dolph almost kind of fell off the radar for a few years there. 
I mean, he was in Johnny Mnemonic, but you didn't really see him in this. I, I think a lot of it is the, the quality of these movies is not probably up to spec on uh, for what mainstream audiences are used to at this point. You know, these aren't Joel Silver movies or anything. There's just not that kind of sheen. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. You know, I mean, and, and I still say, and, you know, on, on the previous episode, my, my buddy Chris brought this up, you know, Joshua Tree and uh, let's see what else. Even something like Hidden Assassin, I think those films were made with the intent to go theatrical. And then for whatever reason, they decided to go to home video. Around this era, though, I mean, this is when Sweepers was made right when around the time that Lundgren started producing his movies through the company New Image. And so this followed The Peacekeeper. And so this has a lot of, a lot of the people who had their, their hand in the pot on Peacekeeper also were working on this film. And so a lot of the production values of Sweepers is very similar to Peacekeeper. I, mean, I, I feel like this film was made pretty much from the get-go with the intent to go direct-to-video. Having said that, if you compare this to The Peacekeeper... I would say that this is that this is a little better because I think this one has a sense of scope and a sense of scale to it that I think was missing in the Peacekeeper. That's fair. It doesn't have that uh, that crazy car chase across the rooftops, but no. <laughs> it does have a it has a, a pretty epic ending with the the train fight and the mine cart fight. It, it, I guess a lot of that is sort of uh, you know you look at he'd worked with John Woo on blackjack and then i think so some of this might have been kind of aping woo style from like broken arrow and oh, in yeah. fact it, i'd say it it almost outdoes it were it not for you know the the editing and direction yeah i was going to bring that up as well yeah the the director of this film i think is probably one of the huge detriments to this i i would i would say if this is directed by anybody else maybe it would not have gone theatrical but this this very well could have looked better and be much more memorable than it is. This was directed by Keone Waxman, who, for whatever okay. reason, yeah, who, for whatever reason, he is credited in this film as Darby Black. I guess rumor has it Darby Black was kind of like his pseudonym or his pen name, if you will. And so he, around this period, was directing his films under under that particular title. But yeah, Keone, Keone Waxman is he's not yeah, he's not the I, flashiest I director. Yeah. But he's he's quite good actually in in most DTV movies. So it's interesting that you say that because this is it doesn't really reflect the stuff I've usually seen of him. You know, he did he does some decent stuff with Seagal and he did Hunt to Kill, which I quite like. Yeah, I I liked Hunt to Kill as well. I think that's actually one of uh, Steve Austin's best flicks. But yeah, around this period, around when uh, he did this film, it's interesting if you look at his filmography, it's quite humorous because. He has become a uh, a fairly you know decent sized name in the uh, direct to video action genre, especially yeah. with Steven Seagal. Uh, I looked this up. He has really built a solid working relationship with Steven Seagal. He's directed ten projects with him, uh, including many episodes of that show that they did, uh, uh, True Justice. But before Keone Waxman became a uh, an action director, so yeah, he did this film. Sweepers was one of his first directorial jobs and then after this i think this is hilarious but he directed a direct-to-video anna nicole smith biopic so it's <laughs> it's just it's it's really kind of wild his uh his resume around this period well that's funny yeah but i 
I didn't know that. I didn't even. I didn't know who Darby Black was. I saw the name and I was like, okay, it does not ring a bell. Yeah, no, yeah, that that is in fact Keone Waxman. And I guess also uh, other things I've read online. I guess the film was taken away from him, kind of in the post production phase. Uh, one of the producers. Yeah. Yeah, one of the producers who had his hand in this was uh, uh, Danny Lerner. And I guess Danny Lerner, working for New Image around this time, was pretty notorious for that. He would, you know, tamper with the films in the post-production phase and and piss off the directors and the actors who worked on them. I, I think it's safe to say that this is probably not one of Lundgren's most most favorable experiences, I guess, on wor- working on a film. Well, probably not. Yeah. To do his, uh, his Clint Eastwood impression for through most of the movie and that you know he's probably got a kick out of that yeah no <laughs> big eastwood guy so yeah he is a big eastwood guy and i've heard that from multiple people but yeah it seems like eastwood is one of his uh is one of his role models and i guess um from what i've heard he can recite entire monologues and lines of dialogue from clint eastwood from a lot of his films so i guess how you and i appreciate lundgren and van damme he his hero is clint eastwood so that's pretty cool so <laughs> well, that makes sense yeah a lot of those guys i mean schwarzenegger that eastwood was a hero of his too these a lot of these guys that came up in the 80s that was kind of their thing yeah those guys bronson and eastwood so makes sense yeah well and before we fully dive into sweepers because yeah i I think it's safe to say i think this may be one of the uh one of the only podcasts out there that really is taking such an in-depth look at this little film so, but I think that's pretty cool. But before we do that, I'm curious, what is your experience with Dolph Lundgren over the years? Well, unlike a lot of people, I didn't get into him through Rocky Four. I think the first thing I ever saw him in was Universal Soldier. And he was just such a good time in that. I wanted to see something else you've been in. And then I saw Red Scorpion, which I absolutely loved and I still love. It's uh, it's probably my favorite of his. Well, it's definitely my favorite of his, but so good in it um he gets to play naive and and then and totally badass at the same time it's just it's just one of those fun kind of movies um it's like a a rambo three but with maybe more of a heart you know it feels less cynical well and i was really looking forward to asking you about your love of red scorpion obviously that was (laughs) quite a that was quite a few films back in the series but yeah. So, yeah, this is your favorite Dolph Lundgren film. And if I'm not mistaken, you, you've you made it your mission to collect various versions of this film. Is that right? Yeah, I have everything from VHS to VCD, DVD, Blu-ray. Uh, I don't have a laser disc of it yet, but I'm always looking. So I'm curious what started that particular collection, because I just think that is so cool. Me personally... I own all of Dolph Lundgren's films and have them on a combination of DVD and Blu-ray and uh, same thing with Van Damme and everything. But to, to take one particular film and expand upon it with not only multiple copies, but different variations, I just think that's so cool. What started that? Well, I worked at a video store and this years and years ago, and I noticed that there were widescreen and full screen DVDs and they didn't always list them online. So I ended up, buying about three dvds and they all ended up being full screen but one of them was pain and scale so i thought well i'll just keep keep looking and then i found a i never found a widescreen dvd i don't think i think eventually i got a widescreen blu-ray but it was it and uh, i got the arrow release and then synapse films and it just kept 
kept going and I'm like, oh, I might as well get a steel book of that too. And then I noticed that uh, I had a full matte version. One of my full screens was a full matte. So I could see more of the image than I could see even in the widescreen. And I don't know, it just, it just sort of snowballed, I guess. That is really cool. And I'm assuming that you have them proudly on display in your house. Is that I right? Do. <laughs> do you really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. I got a big old row of them. My that wife, is... who's a big uh, Dolph Lundgren fan too, she, she was just making fun of me about it. Oh, that is uh, very cool. needs to be more prominent. Yeah, she loves Dolph. You know, my wife as well. You know, my wife actually didn't even know who Dolph Lundgren was. And then we, when we started dating and then after we got married, pretty much every, every year when a new title of his would come out, I'd come home from the store with it or it'd, it'd be in the mail. So she knows Dolph Lundgren quite well at this time. So, so maybe on one of the next episodes, we can get all of us together. And so, <laughs> yeah, there you go. I bet she'd like that. <laughs> so, oh yeah yeah so but so yeah red scorpion that that is really cool though that you have that you have amassed all these various versions over the years you know red scorpion that is one of uh, probably i'd say in my top five of london's films and like i said that oh, was a yeah it's great that was a few episodes well, back was, you know it's one of those yeah i listened to that episode by the way good episode that was another one of those uh those movies where you know you you watch it enough times and you think you know it all and then get a different version of it and you're like oh there's you know i can see more of the screen or further down they had they released another version with more footage in it so i was like, oh that's fantastic there's more movie for me well yeah i mean and i said this on that episode i i still think out of all of his films that is one of probably the most character driven of all of his films you know what i mean i mean that one i think was pretty much taylor taylor made taylor written for him but he occupies virtually every scene in the film i mean and so that is that is if you had to pick one film of his to say okay this is the ultimate dolph lundgren movie i would say red scorpion especially from the golden era even more so than universal soldier because he's amazing in universal soldier but yeah i i, I would put i would put red scorpion as being the more dolph lundgren centric flick from that period. So I, I, like I said, I, I appreciate the fact that you have this collection that you do proudly on display. Well done. So. <laughs> well, as I say, it really plays to his strengths. You know, he's not a lot of guys did that. Well, um, he started as a villain on, as far as mainstream audiences are concerned. He did the same thing Schwarzenegger did where he, he was able to take that and then move into uh, action hero role. And not a lot of guys were able to, yeah, no, I agree. And real quick, regarding the releases, you know, I still, and I, I, I hate to bring this up again, but my memories of Red Scorpion to this day are, and I imagine it's probably one of the versions that you have, is the Star Maker box. You know, the, the, the company Star Maker, that was that cheap VHS company back in the 80s and early 90s or so, who would put out these cheap EP quality tapes and then sell them really, really cheap for about 10 bucks or less. Because around this time, you know, buying a brand new videotape was going to be $25 some, somewhere. If you wanted to get it new, it was well over $100. And so I remember going into various drugstores. It was crazy, actually, because I remember going into various drugstores, grocery stores everywhere. And I would always see Red Scorpion would be that one that would, you know, even, even some of the drugstores that didn't sell a heck of a lot of videotapes, they would have that copy of Red Scorpion. And it had that that cheesy gold trim around the box, if you remember. <laughs> yeah, okay, I remember, yeah. 
And I mean, Star Maker, <laughs> they, they put out tons of just, you know, kind of exploitation, cheesy stuff. I think they might have did like Death Before Dishonor was one and they did a Children of the yeah, Corn. Yeah, I actually have that. Yeah. And I mean, every one of their titles just had that that cheesy uh, gold trim around the box. But yeah, I, I distinctly remember seeing Red Scorpion everywhere. So well, it's weird. Uh, it, I don't know what it is, but maybe it's the fact that he was a Russian guy, but just seemed like that movie should have been much bigger. Of course, the same thing with uh, his Punisher film, although that was because it didn't get a release. These movies that he, sh- you know, he's always like prepped for stardom and it never happened for him. Something would always get in the way. Yeah, yeah, no. Well, with regard to Sweepers, I'm curious, your first exposure to this film, I mean, I know that you said that you own it as well, and I, I imagine you probably have the same copy that I have. Do you Do you own the uh, the, the DVD that's kind of in that... Um, that, that that snap case, if you will, the kind of cardboard cover, the snap case. No, I have, I have mine's a plastic jewel. Oh, is it really? Okay, interesting. So yeah, I, I work. I'm. I don't know where where I came from. Even um, a long time ago, back for my website, I was doing. This is ten, eleven years ago. I was collecting movies from for Dolph Lundgren because I was seeing how many people he killed. And and uh, all together in all of his movies, that was the uh, I'd original impetus for collecting just his movies, and it was um, I, and I got that movie just to count them, and ended up I actually watched it. I've seen it about three three or four times. But yeah, mine has a jewel case. So now buying it. So when when you bought it, I'm assuming was this the first time that you had seen it, or did you see it on cable or something like that prior? No, I, that was the first time I ever watched it. Okay. Well, you know, and my first experience with it wasn't really too spectacular. You know, again, this was this was something that just caught my eye on the video store shelves. You know, th- this was, uh, you know, the internet was, was big and was, you know, starting to boom around this time. But I, there really weren't, I mean, at least to my knowledge, I mean, I was in high school around this period. I didn't know of too many websites that were devoted to you know, to, to Dolph Lundgren at this time, letting you know, okay, what he has in the can, what yeah. he's working on, when it's going to be released, et cetera. So it was, you know, it was kind of that magical period of, of the, of the mid to late nineties where you'd go to the video store. And as you're walking along, seeing the new releases, you see that, you see the image of Dolph on the, on the VHS cover. And you think, Oh, wow, cool. A new Dolph Lundgren movie. Let's check this out. And so this one was pretty much no different. I, I do remember it had a pretty flashy cover. I don't know if you've seen the VHS cover for this one. It was released by Trimark Home Video, who is, of course, now pretty much Lionsgate. Lionsgate pretty much absorbed all the titles from Trimark. Yeah. But it was put out by Trimark. And I remember it had a pretty flashy cover. It was it had it was kind of this orange and purplish cover. And it had an image of Dolph where he's, it's pretty much his entire face is occupying the left hand, the left hand side of the, of the box. And the, the image that they used of him, I suspect it was an image of him much earlier in his career because he looked much younger <laughs> in the image. But it had a really cool tagline. It said, he walk where other men fear. And then underneath it said sweepers. So. <laughs> All right. Actually, that makes way more sense. Um, I've, this is one of those movies, like, you know, that, uh, Seagal movie on deadly ground. I think that would have been a perfect title for this movie. It's about mines. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. (laughs) No. And, and oddly enough, I was gonna, I was gonna bring that up as well. The parallels between this 
and some of those films that Seagal was doing around this period as well. Because if you remember Seagal around that period, I think this is one of the things that really kind of hurt him yeah. is he was doing these films that were environmentally and socially conscious. And so he's doing these films that are making these statements, but at the same time have insane violence and action in them. And I think it yeah. was, it was audiences and critics and whoever watching those was realizing, you know what, if I'm going to go to an action movie, I, I don't want to have to think about it. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't want to have to think about the environment or what is going on. And so I think that's kind of one of the things that slightly hurts this one as well is I, I, I think everyone's efforts are pretty noble. I think it's an incredibly noble effort to do uh, a, a socially conscious film that, that's trying to make a statement of some kind. But then when you have all sorts of, you know, action gunfire and, you know, the Lundgren is jumping from a train that is blowing up. I don't know if those two genres really work together. Well, it's hard. You got to find that balance. I think uh, he did a film a few years ago about uh, human trafficking. Right. Uh, skin trafficker. I think it was called skin it. trade. And that movie's yeah, skin, skin trade. Yeah. He wrote it, but that movie does has the call to action thing and it does it much better than this one did. Right. It doesn't even in this one. I mean, it's they're all, they almost do the same thing where it starts and ends with a message about what's going on, you know, a little context, but I just think that movie somehow did it much better. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, I agree. Well, you know, I mean, that's an excellent segue. Yeah. This film begins with a text crawl that is alerting viewers to the problem and the urgency of landmines in Angola. You know, and like I said, Seagal did a few of these environmentally conscious films in the 90s. He did first. On Deadly Ground and Fire Down Below. Yeah, Deadly Ground, that one was, he was drawing attention to oil spills in Alaska, right? Yeah, well, it was basically about the oil companies and just him point a finger at them saying how evil they are yeah exactly and then and then i haven't seen a fire down below in quite a while but what was the what was the statement he was making with that one he's a he's an fda guy that carries a gun um, <laughs> so i don't know if he's he successfully makes a statement but because it's it's a he's investigating a, a corruption in a small town i, I can't even i think they've got They've set a, a mine on fire under underneath the ground, you know, sort of a centralia kind of thing going on. And well, and see, and I think that's one of the things that has that that sets Lundgren apart from Seagal in a lot of ways is because you know Lundgren over the years has been able to evolve himself in his career. I mean, while you know, let, let's face it, ninety eight percent of his films are all action adventure based. Every one of those films, he is playing a new type of character. You know what I mean? He is he is tweaking his image a little bit. But he's playing a new type of character. You said it yourself with with uh, Fire Down Below and Steven Seagal. And this in that one, he is playing an agent who carries a gun. And I think that's one of the reasons why we saw. Well, excuse me. There are a lot of reasons why Seagal has kind of gone by the wayside, <laughs> and why we don't see yeah. Seagal that much anymore. But I think that is one of the reasons because I mean he was pretty much playing the same type of character in every one of his films. And you know, and if you look at him now, he's still playing the same thing in every one of his films. And that can only last so long before audiences are getting tired of it. You know what I mean? And I think that's a lot of that's one of the yeah. reasons why Van Damme has been able to. I mean. Van Damme went direct to video, but if you look at Van Damme's works, he is kind of following uh, 
he's kind of following the path of Dolph Lundgren in a lot of sense because he's been evolving himself as well, and he's been trying new things with his career. So, Well, I think all of these guys are better than they were ever given credit for. Van Damme especially is uh, only with JCVD did people realize that, oh, he's, he's actually quite an actor. But he he was doing stuff like that before. Right. He was He's a very good actor. Dolph Lundgren is somebody who can stretch. He doesn't always let him do that. But this movie is sort of what I consider at, at the end of the 90s. Um, he just kind of had, he was making more interesting movies. And then he kind of went into this area that would have been really bad, you know, with Stormcatcher and Last Patrol and stuff. Those movies are aren't great. But he, in the midst of that, he started directing. Those movies are quite good. I think, yeah, well, and I think that's, in a lot of ways, I think that is what saved Lundgren's career in, in, in quite a few ways. Definitely. Is him, is him finally stepping behind the camera because he had started giving him the creative control. And it, I think it, I, in my opinion, I, I can't speak for him, but I think him starting to direct his films is really what kind of gave him uh give him a fire again in a lot of his roles because you see him really starting to, to come alive again and his films really start to, to pop and resonate and stand out so much more. But yeah, it's this period from about 96 to, Oh gosh, I mean, we're, we're in it right now with sweepers, but 96 to about 2004, 2005. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that he was doing was just kind of, you know, I mean, it was cool because it's it's him playing each one of those films. He's playing a different type of character, but they're all well. I don't I don't want to want to say that they're all, but many of them like this one are just kind of forgettable. You know what I mean? You're you're gonna watch it and like with Sweepers, I'm gonna I'm gonna be honest with you right now. I really don't have a desire to go back and watch it again anytime soon. So, <laughs> well, it's hard. Part of it, it like I said before, is uh, the editing and the directing. It gives it a it kind of uh, almost painful dreamlike feel a lot of the time, you know, there's a lot of slow motion and it's like when you're trying to run in a dream. And so a lot of the action just feels slower than it needs to. They're not, he doesn't understand how to use that slow motion the way that somebody like John Woo would. No, no. Well, but, but, you know, I do, I do kind of dig the character that he's playing. I mean, Dolph plays the character Christian Erickson. He is this humanitarian aid worker who is an expert at disarming landmines in Angola. And killing people. He was a, he was a special forces guy. Okay. And to to being a minesweeper. And that was, I was going to ask you about that because I think I missed that. So do they establish that he was ex special forces? Yes. Okay, I yeah, missed they that. Mention that. Okay, that was going to be one of my <laughs> one of my grapes because I was like, "How is this humanitarian aid worker such a badass with a gun?" I mean, <laughs> I mean, there's even that shot when he's in the house, he's sliding down the stairs, pulling a John Woo, you know, yeah. shooting both guns, and I'm thinking, I don't know of too many aid workers. Okay, so he is ex special forces. I should have said that. Yeah. Well, he's uh, he's doing the uh, um, stuff he did from Blackjack. Right. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen that one. Oh, yeah. It was, it was a TV movie he made with Chong Wu back in the day. That was the last episode. The same year. That was I, the last episode, yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I th- last one I heard, I, I, uh, I was in a Peace Walker before. Yeah. Well, I mean, but before, uh, he, you know, he did the, uh, or excuse me, he works for the organization. It's the Humanitarian Order of Chivalry. And that's kind of cool because this is, apparently, this is a real legitimate organization. Yeah. 
I, I don't know anything about it. No, me neither. I'm not. That's what they. Said. That that yeah. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's all I'm going to say. It's it's a real organization, but I didn't uh, taking their word for it. Yeah, there, <laughs> there you go. But yeah, no, he is this badass, um, working to do good. Uh, and yeah, he's combing the, these fields in Angola and checking for for landmines. You know, I I, I want to ask you this right now because this is one of the other problems that I have with the film. Like I said. I think its heart is in its right place, and it's it's extremely noble with what they're going for. But I'm just kind of wondering, do, do you feel that landmines are an exciting plot device and plot element? Because I'm watching these, these scenes where they are jumping around and trying to be careful, you know, with these various mines, and I never really feel a sense of urgency. I'm never really on the edge of my seat, you know, thinking, oh, my God, is it going to blow? You know what I mean? <laughs> Well, there. That's the thing. There's this movie's doing three different things. One, it wants to be this uh, heart-pounding action film. Two, it wants to be this mystery about who's got these minds. And three, it's a uh, it, it's a it's a drama, the wartime drama. Um, you can watch something like Hell Is for Heroes from the early '60s Steve McQueen film. Um, there's real great tense scenes where they're crawling through mines. They're excellent, and they do go nowhere near that in this film. But it could have used something like that. But also, it needs to it needs focus. Um, aside from standing around awkwardly in a field, saying there's just mines under you, they need a villain, right? And you just don't have one through almost the entire film. Yeah. No. Well, so we do get the villain. With, uh, yeah. Eventually. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, it's really weird. It's a very strange turn. Where you realize that this doctor, who I guess is like a Doctors Without Borders kind of guy, played by Bruce Payne, in a very strange casting for him, and, and he's he's even got this, I don't know what he's doing with his voice, but he's, you're like, why is he the bad guy now? What I never understood why he he turned. I don't did he explain that because I just I missed it every time I've watched. No, movie. no. So we're kind of jumping to the big twist at the end. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Lundgren's partner, his his partner is played by Bruce Payne. He plays the character of Doctor Cecil Hopper. You know, I, I like Bruce Payne. I, I do. But I, I think he's probably yes. most recognizable from Passenger Fifty Seven. He played he played the great Charles mm -hmm. Rain, and I think besides. Besides Wesley Snipes' line in that film, Always Bet on Black, I think I think <laughs> I Bruce Payne is actually probably more memorable in that film than, than Wesley Snipes was. But, you know, he is... I don't mind Bruce Payne too much, because like I said, I, I liked him in Passenger 57. He's actually... It's, it's, it's a terribly cheesy movie, but did you ever see One Man's Justice with Brian Bosworth? Yes. Okay, he was in that one, and he has this mullet and a nose ring, I mean, in it. It's not a good look, but he's fun in that one. Well, he's, he's a very theatrical actor. Yeah. You know, he he's kind of like a Alan Rickman type. And he, he watch uh, Highlander 3. He's he's uh, electric in that. Oh, no. Yeah, he, he's a great actor. I mean, he's from London, so he has this accent. And, you know, like you know, we talked about One Man's Justice and Passenger 57, uh, the Highlander film. Now that I'm thinking about it, he did another one with... Mario Van Peebles, I want to say, called Full Eclipse. Did you ever see that one? No, I didn't see that one. Okay, that one's pretty wild, actually, as well. But yeah, he always plays bad guys, so it's weird. 
the first time I saw this, because this is actually the third time I, I've watched this film, actually. But the very first time I saw it, as soon as he came on screen, I was thinking, what is he doing here? He typically plays bad guys. I wonder if he's going to be a bad guy. You know, and so his turn yeah. at the end does not surprise me for a second. And like you said, it's it's so weird that he's so terrible in this film because he he has chops. But yeah, he's doing this weird thing with his accent. Why couldn't they just let him use his London accent? I mean, this is an or they're working for this humanitarian order that, you know, brings people from all countries together. Why couldn't they just had him use his his regular English accent? I think they might have, and it might be a, a dub over, but because there were certain points where I was wondering if it was. Okay. It seems strange at times. He's just kind of puffing his lines. Yeah. Does, and I'll ask you this now. Did his turn at the end of the film surprise you at all? Uh, and narratively, yes. <laughs> but, you know, I was in the same place you were. Oh, Bruce Payne's in this. He's the bad guy. I immediately think that. Yeah. But narratively, I like I said, I am. I do not understand why he, his character turns no. at, at any point. They, He's a doctor who saves lives, and he doesn't have any any reason to have turned or be selling landmines. I just don't get it. Well, and the big reveal, uh, you have to laugh at, because the big reveal at the end, we find out, yeah, he is the mastermind behind all of this, and... It's just, it's not a good reveal at all. When it's discovered that he's the big bad guy, he's suddenly wearing a suit and he's drinking a glass of wine. They should have just put a cat in his left arm and he could have been stroking the cat as well. I mean, it was... Yeah, there you go. You know? So... Uh, yeah, well, if you're going to go full bond with it, why not? Yeah, so... It's very strange. But then again, I guess it's not that... If they wanted it to be an action movie, they could have done without all the drama. Yeah. It's just... Then you could have had him do whatever, and nobody would care. They just need somebody better to do the action. Yeah. Well, I mean, and they're making Lundgren's character. You know, we've seen this type of character before. They're they're given Lundgren. He is the hero with a tragic past. You know, and a character arc yeah. like this, this was popular in action movies in the 1990s. I think, and I can't exactly pinpoint it, but I, I like to think it was Sylvester Stallone's cliffhanger that kind of you know, created the launch pad for this type of hero. You know, he is the hero who screwed up in, in a lot, in, in, in some ways, or the, the hero who lost something. I guess I probably shouldn't say he messed up, but he's the hero who lost someone or, you know, who lost a life. And so we see him at the beginning of the film, he's going to be down and out and, and tragic. And in Lundgren's case in this film, he is a drunk, but it, it's the hope that over the course of the film, he is going to redeem himself and get back what he had lost. And like I said, we saw this Stallone did this in cliffhanger. Uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme followed that same kind of character in sudden yeah. death. Even Bruce Willis did this in last boy scout. Obviously last boy scout came before all of those, but yeah, we've seen this type of character arc before. Like I said, it's a, uh, it's the character who failed in saving the day in a previous mission, but we're hoping by the end of this film, they're going to get that back and find redemption. Well, you know, and it's it's uh, interesting when when the when they have the scene in the beginning of the movie when uh, they, they, his son dies, he hits he, he steps on a mine, and it's a very well shot scene, and you think it's going to be some kind of drama, but then it's not. Right. It, it happens at in the midst of a pretty wild and bombastic action moment. Right. So, 
it's hard to suss what the movie's trying to be just because of that scene. And then later they, they do a de- decent amount of intercutting when he finds the, the African kid who's blown his leg off. Right. He picks him up and they, and they intercut with, you know, kind of rub it in your face. Like, you don't know what's going on. Uh, of course, that's a 90s thing, like you're saying. But yeah, you know, I'd, I hadn't really thought about the Stallone connection there, but you're right. It is very cliffhanger-ish. It's just not as well done as, I guess, Rennie Harlan's just a better director. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, Rennie Harlan did cliffhanger. And then, you know, let's face it, Sudden Death, which, in my opinion, you know, I, I think the opening scene in Sudden Death could have been done so much better, you know, with that scene just of Van Damme lying on the ground holding the girl as the uh, as the fire collapses on him. I think they edited it out much, much more. But I always thought that was kind of a weak opening. But yeah, that one was directed by Peter Hyams, who also is an accomplished director. But yeah, you know, it's 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 odd because we see Lundgren's son die by you know, stepping on a landmine, which is sad. But on the other hand, I, I don't know if you picked up on this or not, but I had a slight, okay, narratively, I had a problem with this because the film opens where he is, the little boy's name is Johnny, and the film opens where Lundgren is leaving Johnny at home. He's supposed to be at home sleeping, but it's broad daylight out. So why <laughs> why is he sleeping so that Lundgren can go to work when it's broad daylight out? And why is he leaving his son alone at home? And he's surprised to see that he snuck along with him in the Jeep. I, like I said, narratively, from a storytelling standpoint, that whole kind of angle felt a little muddled with me. I think they could have changed that up with just, you know, uh, Christian Erickson is bringing his boy with him to work one day and he's saying, hey, stay behind these lines right here. Daddy has to go to work or something. Well, it's, it's a it's just it's bad writing. Yeah. It's bad filmmaking. He, <laughs> I mean, I don't really know. I can't explain that because that's just uh, that's a you know, why why is your why would you bring your kid to you know, with you, and it's in a war zone. This is a, a area of civil war, they say in the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. And, oh, I'm just going to bring my kid with me to this place. <laughs> so it's, it's just a, it's bad filmmaking. Yeah. But I guess they needed an excuse. It's not, you know, cliffhanger makes sense. They, they go out of their way to explain this lady is a first time climber and she's very uncomfortable. She doesn't know what she's doing. Um, every, and now we're, there's crosswinds and, they, they, it's this perfect storm of, of problems that causes her to, to fall to her death. Well, and why cliffhanger, so, why cliffhanger works in a lot of ways is because you have that, that rivalry and that hatred between Sylvester Stallone and Michael Rooker. And so you're hoping by the end of yeah, the, by the end of the film, they are going to form an alliance and become friends again. All, you know, and I hate to say it, but, all the death of the little boy in Sweepers does is it's a plot device that just drives the action mm-hmm. forward. And it, in my opinion, I think that's just, it's, it's a little, it's kind of tasteless in a lot of ways to, to kill a kid in the opening five minutes of the film to give, to give your main character a desire to, to move forward. You know what I mean? Yeah, actually that's a, uh, that's a good point. And, and really they just, they needed that aspect with the, uh, the two leads there with Bruce Payne and Dolph Lundgren. Instead, you're just their friends until the end when they're not. Exactly, exactly. So, but the film does pick up five years later. Um, we we get that with a with a nice uh, with 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 a nice I don't know what you want to call it. Um, 
the wording at the bottom of the screen that tells you five years later, upstate New York, a senator. Thank, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> thank you very much for letting us know. It's not just New York, but upstate New York. So, yes. <laughs> but, you know, the, like we needed to know the, the geography there. The, this kind of amazed me because we have this hostage situation scene. So a senator and his family have been taken hostage. And the the terrorists who have done this, they have planted landmines around the mansion. And the landmine looks extremely similar to the advanced landmine that we saw earlier. We find out it's called the A6, and it's this high-tech landmine. It's made of Kevlar, and it's shaped like a butterfly. And it looks pretty slick, but what's amazing, here we are talking about plot devices once again, but it's it's amazing. We are given no background I mean, unless i missed something please help me out but we're given no background at all as to who these terrorists are why they have the senator and his family held hostage nothing it's just they completely drop that to establish the fact that the landmine has hit stateside apparently well it's a very yeah it's another bit of bad filmmaking where they not only do nothing to, to tell us what these terrorists are other than I guess they're just trying to scare somebody, but for what ends we don't know. And then uh, if they do go into, there's a guy who invented this landmine, and so you think maybe we're going to go into that, but then they don't. They even show the guy's face who invented it, and it's very strange. Yeah, and we never see that guy it's though like, throughout uh, the film. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. They, you just see you, there's a picture of the guy, and then you think, okay, so it's like a a mystery film we're trying to figure out what's going on and then they they just don't go into it it's all kinds it's i swear this movie's three different movies trying to be one yeah well it's in and in a lot of ways it's kind of similar to actually i think it's a little bit better but if you remember pentathlon did you ever see pentathlon yes um pentathlon was is a kind of a bore fest though yeah you can tell that it's a it's a it feels like a pet project kind of movie though yeah that movie feels like it it at least has a purpose. Well, and see, I've always felt the pentathlon had like four different storylines, four different movies going on in that one. I, I think I like sweepers a little bit better, but yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying. It's, it, it's just odd. And it feels like they're rushing to get to the next scene. And they, they don't really care that what they've established in the previous scene that people are going to have questions about. I mean, I don't know how many people saw this film. I don't even know how many people, own this film. I think you and I might be like, what, two of 12? But, uh... <laughs> yeah. There's a dozen people listening right now that go, yeah, I've always wondered that. What's going on with that? Yeah. So... <laughs> with those terrorists. But, yeah, I mean, I mean we find out know. that the... that the So it's called the A6. It's, like I said, it's this high-tech landmine. It is being made, manufactured in Angola, which everyone finds extremely odd because Angola is a third-world country that is... um being ravaged by, by war using devices such as these. I want to ask you real quick about the about the look of the landmine. So the A6, like I said, it's made of Kevlar, shaped like a butterfly. I guess for a film about landmines, you need the landmine to be something that is going to stand out and that is going to look pretty slick. And that's one thing I do have to appreciate. I think the, the landmine that they're using in this film, because, I mean, if you look at, I did a little bit of research, not a lot, but if you look at landmines, they're, they're pretty clunky and and you know boring looking i mean they're just like like a box that is in the ground i guess you know this is something that adds a little bit of um a little bit of scope 
to the film. Would you agree? Yeah. Well, actually, I love this landmine. Um, not so much. I mean, it, it it doesn't look functional to me, although it, I guess it could be. But I love that it's shaped. I think it's shaped like it is so that he can use it as a throwing star. Oh, I, <laughs> I, I, and I was wondering that too. The very first time I saw this film, it's so funny you mentioned that. Uh, the very and it, it was weird, and I, I'm not kidding. I didn't see any trailers. I didn't see any spoilers. I mean, I rented this on VHS back in 1998 when it came out. I was in high school, but I remember in the in the opening scene where they see and they're holding that particular device. I remember thinking to myself, "Well, you can stab someone with that." And isn't it coincidental that that happens to be how our main bad guy dies at the end? <laughs> yeah, but uh, that's uh, and you know what? That's awesome. Right. <laughs> I love that he does that. <laughs> so, I was like, oh, please. When, when he was charging at the end, I, I actually was like, oh, please throw that right <laughs> in. And he did. And not only they chucked it and it stuck him right to the wall. It was fantastic. <laughs> we, get our, we get our co-lead. So, you know, Lundgren needs, before he, he enters the picture once again, you know, we're establishing the immediacy about how they need to go to Angola and they need to find these mines. They need to find out who's manufacturing them, who's shipping them out, what's going on. And so enter the the character of Michelle Flynn. So Michelle Flynn is played by Claire Stansfield. I actually really like her in this film. It, it's kind of weird because she's adding a uh, a, a sense of, I mean, I, I think I remember her most from Drop Zone. She was in, in Drop Zone. She played a villain. I don't know if you ever saw Drop Zone. So you must really be a Snipes guy. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's okay. weird. that. So, yeah. I was- I know you, 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 as a second Snipes movie you brought up, but I was, I knew her from, uh, Xena. She was on Xena. Oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Well, and I remembered her. Yeah. Not a lot, but she was. Well, on. I remembered her from Drop Zone because, yeah, she played Gary Busey's right hand gal in the film. And yeah. it, it was, it was really interesting because I remember seeing Drop Zone as well in, in the theaters. And it was weird because, so Wesley Snipes, his accomplice in the film was Yancey Butler. And and then Gary Busey, the the antagonist in the film, his his right hand gal or his his accomplice is Claire Stansfield. And it was weird if you watch Drop Zone, Claire Stansfield and Yancey Butler look extremely similar. So it was wild watching that film because for a minute you had to do a couple double takes. Like, well, which one's Yancey Butler? Which one's Claire Stansfield? Well, on uh, rewatching this, uh, as I had not too long ago, I watched Hard Target Two, and uh, Rona Mitra. I think looks very similar to Claire Stansfield as well. Okay, yeah. So, so uh, it's just yeah, and it's getting that we're getting like this weird triple doppelganger thing, I guess. Yeah, going on. <laughs> well, I mean, and I, I think as I was saying, I think that uh, Claire Stansfield is, I think she's, she thinks that she's acting in a film that's bigger than it is because I actually think she's quite good in this film. I mean, it, when she's on screen, she is good. Yeah. I think she's doing a, 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 a great job in the film. I think her and Dolph have, have a great chemistry with one another. And so, and I guess what's interesting about it is I didn't realize this, but she is tall. I mean, she, when you see her standing alongside Dolph and Dolph is a tall dude, she's no shrimp next to him. I mean, of course he's taller, but yeah, she's, she's got some, uh, she's got some height on her. Yeah, I thought that one scene too because I was just thinking, you know, it was a weird little, um, I, I guess, a reflection because I earlier in the movie when he's walking around with Bruce Payne, I was like, oh, Bruce Payne looks like a tiny man, and then there's Claire Stansfield, I was like, oh, she's like ear level with him, 
Yeah, yeah. Well, and she, like I said, she plays this character, Michelle Flynn. Uh, apparently, she helped design the A6 before it was stolen and sold to the highest bidder on the black market. So she is sent in by the senator. The senator, keep in mind, who five minutes earlier in the film was he and his family were held hostage. Again, we don't know by who or why or any of that. But, uh, yeah, she, the senator orders her to go to Angola and find Christian Erickson. Okay, so this is Dolph's character, obviously, because, quote unquote, he is the best there is when it comes to diffusing these things. He's an expert in demolitions is what they say. So her job, go to Angola find Christian Erickson and diffuse the rest of the rest of these that are apparently out there and being manufactured. Which brings us to a very fun reveal where he's the guy getting his ass kicked in, the, in this barroom brawl uh, slash ring fight. And I, and I love that whole scene, but it's uh, at no point does she attempt to actually contact him. I, I maybe and they could have used it as a moment of humor too. She could have turned to the other guys. She goes down there with him and went, yeah, we're not talking to that guy. Yeah, no. Well, and I, I think I missed something else too, but he's getting his ass kicked while his hands are tied together. And I mean, I love this. I mean, look, it's Dolph. So of course he's getting his ass kicked at first, but we know that that's not going to last. And he's able to get the upper hand again. I want to stress while his hands are tied together but he says, okay, I want my diamonds. So I was a little unclear on this as well. Was he was he engaging in this? Were they betting on him? Like, for example, you know, oh, I bet I bet Dolph wouldn't be able to beat these guys with his hand tied. Okay, we have diamonds in the in the bet. I mean, what, what was what was the purpose of this? Well, that's, uh, you know, it's again, bad filmmaking, but I think it's something like that because he he's doing a. He, you see him later. He does like a race through a minefield, right? You know, and think that that it, this is along those lines where it's uh, I can beat my beat you guys with one arm tied behind my back, and they said, "Well, how about two arms tied behind your back?" And he's like, "Okay." Okay. So you get these, uh, you know. I think did he do Bridge of Dragons before or after this? I think after this. Yeah, Bridge of Dragons is after this. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so there's there's the the fight scenes in that in that where he's doing. Uh, where you find out he's actually this badass kind of fighter like that. So I guess this is a practice for that, for that kind of thing. And I guess, did you watch diamond dogs? Oh yes. Diamond dog, diamond dog. Yeah. I was thinking okay. that as well. There's a scene in diamond dogs. that's almost exactly the same. Yeah. So that's what, it, this is sort of like that. I think where he's just sort of, well, he plays a guy named Ronson in that movie and he's just a, a expatriate and that's what he does. He just, uh, does random things for money. He's basically a mercenary. Right. And I think that's what he's doing here. He, but except he doesn't take money, he takes diamonds and he uses it to go drinking. Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, he is, he has hit complete rock bottom, which I, I think anybody, you know, would, I mean, who witnesses their, their, their child, you know, um, you know, blown up in front of them. I mean, my goodness. So yeah, he's hit absolute rock bottom. Like we said, he's participating in bar fights to make money. Um, he seems to be haunted every minute of every day by his son's death. I mean, th this is one of the things in the film that um, I think is a little problematic is, you know, we saw the horrific scene at the, at the beginning of the film. And I think kind of like we keep saying, I mean, I, I, I think the motif that we keep repeating throughout, <laughs> throughout the episode is bad filmmaking, but 
it, it seems like the the directors, the editors, whoever it may have been, feel the need to continually do the flashback of of his son dying, of his son stepping on the on the on the mine, almost like we as a viewer aren't smart enough to remember that scene or like we need to be reminded of why Lundgren would be in the current state that he's in. This is why you need a, you need a decent editor right. when you make a movie. <laughs> this is someone to tell you, Oh, the pacing's not right. I mean, I actually would have cut out everything uh, up to the beginning. When you see the, the Paris doing all that nonsense. That that would have been the beginning of the movie, if you ask me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and then and then she her reveal of of uh, Dolph Lundgren's character would come when she goes to Angola. Right, right. Well, I do. I I mean, look, I I I really dig the look that that Lundgren is sporting in this film. I mean, the hat that he's wearing, I just think he wears it well. I mean, he looks so cool. I mean, this is this is Dolph playing Indiana Jones. You mentioned uh, the the film Diamond Dogs, which was kind of Lundgren's Indiana Jones style film that he tried doing back in 2006, 2007. But in this one, I think he's, he's really trying to kind of mirror a lot of the Indiana Jones uh, story beats, you know, especially near the end of the film where he's repelling. But I do really like the Indiana Jones style hat that he wears. That looks cool. The one thing yeah. that, that I wanted to ask you about is, okay, we're to assume that he has hit rock bottom so he's 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 drinking quite a bit. He's smoking. He still is physically fit, which I think is is is, is pretty. In. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering. I was wondering to bring that up. But you know, yeah, he he looks great. He looks great, and he's <laughs> for a guy who's hit rock bottom for five well, years. And he's you know he's completely shaven. I mean, I would think that that they should have given him a beard or something like that, or at least some some stubble or something like that for us to fully believe this. Uh, the, the direction his character has, has turned. Would, would you agree? Yeah. I don't know if they're just trying to play it up like he's the guy who doesn't grow a beard. Yeah. Or what? I mean, he, even uh, Harrison Ford drew on some stubble. Yeah. So, I don't know. But I do... It's very odd. I do like his method of finding landmines. I don't really... I don't really understand it. I wanted to ask you about this. I wanted to break this down with you because I don't... I didn't understand it the first time I watched it. I don't I didn't get it the second time and the third time Britain I still don't so so his methods of finding landmines I, I I just don't understand he seems to have this signature move in which he grabs a knife but what's interesting is he grabs the knife a special way and he uses it so he sticks it in the ground but this is kind of his method of of you know kind of poking around the mine what what is your take on these on those scenes well the I I've seen it, like I said, I mentioned Hell is for Heroes before, and that's sort of what you see them doing in that movie, where they're they're poking out from the side, you know, you step on it, and it's over. But, so if you, I guess the idea is if you go from the side or you can reach underneath of it, uh, it won't go. And so he's got a, a method, and, and I think it's sort of implied he, he's so good, it's almost like a sixth sense. Right. Like, he can tell almost within inches where, where there's going to be a mine. Cause he'll just be walking and he goes, stop. And then, and then he'll crouch down. And he'll, he just knows there's one down here. Hold on. Let me tell you. Yep. Sure enough, I know. You always hear it. You hear the old clink. Well, you, you <laughs> mentioned hard target earlier. And one of, I love hard target. 
but it's yeah. very similar to a scene in Hard Target, and it's a scene that I always just shake my head at with frustration. So if you remember, <laughs> and I won't go off on this tangent for too long, but if you remember in Hard Target, where Chance Boudreau, that's that's uh, that's Van Damme's character, mm-hmm. where he is going through that burned building, and he's looking for evidence for... Um, oh, you remember this? Yeah. So he's looking for evidence. Yeah, to, yeah the dog the tags. Dog, yeah, exactly. How is he able to find those dog tags? And, I mean, that was like a warehouse that looked like it was burnt. And we have all this soot and all this charred wood and these ashes and everything. And he finds those dog tags immediately. I mean, he's in that building for not only five minutes. And if you remember, he's walking around and he just picks up a stick and he digs in a little area and he finds these dog tags and he says, bingo. I think this is kind of the same thing. I I think when we're watching films with these action icons, we're just supposed to put (laughs) our disbelief aside and say, yes. They can do that. They have a sixth sense that is <laughs> that kills ours. Well, and and hard target, you know, that's a John Woo movie, and John Woo protagonists tend to to have a almost magical quality about them because they're sort of everything's fate. You know, they're meant to meet this other male protagonist and have this kind of um, connection. So everything that happens for them, you know, it's just, it's kind of a a magic. That's what, that's when a, that's like a John Woo is right. Where everybody's, they meet each other and it's just kind of a, I don't know what you would, what you would call it, but they, they just, they lock eyes and then they're, they're friends. Right. You know, you watch the killer and yeah, that, that's, but, um, Boudreaux is, is a, is a one man show pretty much unlike most of John Woo's protagonists. So he just kind of has all that. But he, oddly enough, it's the one time where, you know, two fat hillbillies get the drop on him like immediately after he finds the dog tag. But so I don't know. It's I, I'm not sure what where I'm going with this, but <laughs> I guess it's that's just a John Woo thing. But uh, in this case, I think it's it, it's sort of meant to be like that, but it's also meant to be like, he's just that extraordinary. You know, it's not like he he's necessarily trained to be that. He just is that good. He's one of those guys who just, Oh, I'm, I can fly a plane better than anybody or I can you know, do whatever. But he, his thing is funny. He's an expert. He's an expert at these mines. Yes, so he's, he's the expert. If he was Seagal, they would have a monologue about how he's the guy who teaches. the. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Yeah, that's right. Or no, actually, if it was Seagal, he would have a he would have a mysterious past that they never want to elaborate on. He's just he was that guy who everyone knew about. And feared. Yes. <laughs> so, but yeah, you mentioned it already. We see Erickson competing in these races around landmines. Mm-hmm. So all these landmines have have these markers in them, these sticks in them, and so he he's he's drunk, he's intoxicated. I, I will say, I think Lundgren he, he appears to be. I don't know if he's if he had a ton of fun making this film, but him playing a drunk guy who is trying to hustle someone else is a ton of fun. Just the scene where he looks at Jaeger. So Jaeger is the one who's challenging him and how he screams, you got it. You know, I mean, (laughs) you can tell he's having fun. And I I think he's channeling in some kind of ways, just in that one line of dialogue. he, He reminded me in a lot of ways of when he was Andrew Scott, because Andrew Scott, when he was in Universal Soldier, bit. he's so unhinged and having fun. So it was kind of cool to see him harken back to that a bit. 
Well, especially in that race scene, right at the beginning of it, um, he sets up the race, but then, you know, he, he kind of has a death wish, so he doesn't really care. And he's talking to somebody off to the side when the race starts and he totally misses the the start, which is so funny yeah. to me. But it reminds me, you brought up uh, Andrew Scott, and it does remind me of that scene in the supermarket in Universal Soldier where he's he's just rambling about, oh, Charlie's everywhere, yeah. and then the cops run in, and he's, he's rambling with these guys, and the cops come in and yell at him, and he shoots them kind of uh, offhandedly, and he goes, see? Yeah. everywhere and just <laughs> and that's what it reminded me of is that kind of oh i guess i i got i got something to i do love here. that scene yeah just the way he shrugs his shoulders see and then he pauses and he does that kind of shrug of his shoulders like what do you want me to do you know like see what yeah. i'm saying <laughs> i'm just saying there's a problem and i'm the only one who's doing anything <laughs> no, i'm the bad guy what are you talking about so <laughs> but what's Dolph too he he rarely gets to have that kind of fun like one of the things uh, i watched i love joshua tree i love that movie army of one and he's he's kind of in a, a kind of bland hero mode though for, through at least the second half of it um, despite the fact that there's some really good action in it but he he often kind of has these roles where that's and that ends up how they 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 play it He's just sort of, eh, I'm a good guy. Yeah. And every once in a while, he gets to have fun. And he's a little fun in this one. I really liked him uh, in Diamond Dogs. But Universal Soldier, those movies, he's, he's fantastic. And I liked him in uh, Expendables films. He gets to have fun in those. Yeah. I love when they let him do something. Just like he, if he, I remember an interview, he said something about anytime he gets to do his homework before the movie about the character, it's always a better project. And I think in this one, he's doing a little bit uh, Eastwood, little Humphrey Bogart, like African Queen kind of thing going on. And then, uh, you know, and, and they're definitely shades of other stuff. But he, you know, it's definitely more fun. And, he, and I like that about it. Yeah, like, you know, he has been able to evolve over the years and he's trying something new. Yes. And even if it is a low budget project that is meant to be direct to video like this, I think it's safe to say he's he's one of those guys who's always going to give his all and he's always going to deliver. Unlike Seagal, who's just going to phone his performance in almost to the point where he won't even come back for any kind of reshoots to where they have to have someone else redub him. I mean, <laughs> you know, Lundgren is yeah, Lundgren's going to deliver. It's embarrassing. Watching oh, I know. I, I gave up on. Yeah, that's one thing you can say. Oh, yeah. yeah I gave up on Seagal so hard to, not 15 years ago, but. <laughs> Well, and he's, but uh, since you're um, 15 years, but uh, we brought up, you know, we're talking about Keone Waxman. He is, you know, I think the keeper is pretty good for Seagal. And that's Keone Waxman. Um, actually, I would say pretty much any Seagal movie that, that Waxman did um, is, is all right. Um, oddly enough, the, you know, the reason you don't see a lot of Seagal over there at New Image and, and the, you know, anything that the learners have to do with is because he does not get along. Yeah, there's bad blood there, I guess, right? So he did, um, what is it, Danny, Danny Lerner, who did, I think, most of the action on this film, he did uh, He did something, he did the action on uh, Mercenary for Justice, and that's the only thing I've seen, I guess, that that's similar, in, in that it has the that sort of 
dreamlike quality. So maybe you can blame some of that editing and action, you know, when it, when it feels wrong, you can blame that on him. Cause he, he, those, those are the, I think the only movies that I've, and that, that's, that's what this reminded yeah. me of is that, that another Seagal movie. So. Yeah. Well, Lundgren is in these, in these scenes where he is racing around the landmines. Uh, he does compete against another man in the film. We are introduced to this guy. His name is Jaeger. And we know immediately that he's going to be one of the villains in the film. There's really not much to this to this particular villain. W- what is your take on Jaeger? I've never seen the actor. Me personally, I've never seen the actor in anything else, and I didn't even really think to look at his IMDb and see if he's been familiar. But he, he's I don't I don't know. He's one of those villains that just kind he's of just, was there, you know. He actually reminds me of those guys um, we we're talking about before that that. Uh, jump Jean-Claude Van Damme, where he doesn't look uh, quite right for the role. You're like, this guy's going to go against the know. Oh, all right. He, he, and he's got a beard, and he looked kind of old. I think he was, he reminds me of one of the guys that was in that Casper Van Dien Tarzan movie. <laughs> That's what he reminds me of. But it's just like, you know, here's a he's a bad guy, and here, here he is. It's just like generic. You know, I hate to use that term. I really hate that term, but that's what he is. And he, I mean, he asserts his, he asserts his dominance and that the fact that we know immediately that these landmines, these are his, and he's the one who is apparently in control of these. And we get a scene that's, I, I thought it was oddly kind of, kind of disturbing where he's, he, he's pretty much torturing the contact who Michelle Fields was initially being shown around by. Apparently this guy is, I don't know if he's really working for Jaeger, but He's kind of like the uh, the the guy on the street, I guess, if you will, for Jaeger. Oh no, I think he, I think that they're hinting that they're lovers because he gets really upset when he when he dies. Oh, that's right. Well, I mean, he blows him up in a landmine. I mean, it's 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 a really kind of bizarre scene, but yeah, just him screaming. You know, he's saying, you know, where are my landmines? Who is this looking for my landmines? And you just have him pleading. He's saying, I don't know. And just how he shoots one of the landmines, blows up, and just how he's so callous, he says, "I guess he didn't know." I mean, it's it's it's. Oh yes, well, actually, you know what? I like that that uh, on paper. I think that's right scene because it's uh, you know, it's just like it's the idea, anyways, that that torture doesn't really work, and then he, you know, shows his cruelty. So it's a scene that could work. I don't know if the actor sells it. Um, the other guy, the guy that's out in the yeah. field. Uh, that gets hit with the, he, he sells, sells it. it. Yeah. He actually seems genuinely terrified. Like maybe that guy is just a, a, a guy that they could go. Yeah. By the way, um, we do have some real landmines out there with the props. So look out, you know, the kind of thing you tell yeah. somebody, but I, don't... <laughs> yeah, yeah. He genuinely does seem like he's very, oh, I don't want to step anywhere. It's really, I think that's. Well, and I, I mentioned it already, I but. I think the scenery in this film is great. I mean, I think it, it like I said earlier, it, it lends a, a sense of, of scope and scale to the film. I mean, it really does. I guess it was filmed in South Africa. But yeah, I, I think the scenery in the film, I, I, I like it. I mean, there are, I mean, aren't too many scenes that take place during the, during the nighttime. It's, it's pretty much a sunny film. And I think that works, you know, use a natural light on a film. 
using the sun and everything is going to cut production costs down. And so, you know, that certainly makes sense. But no, I, I, as I'm watching this, I'm digging the scenery and I'm digging the, the overall locale where this is shot. Well, Africa is a very cinematic yeah. place. And you can make movies. Uh, you ever see a ghost in the dark? Oh, yeah. Just, just a visually stunning place. So you can do all kinds of things in Africa and, and make it look great. And, you know, they've known that forever. And I think that they do use a lot of it, even though sometimes it does look, look like, oh, here they're just standing in a field. But it generally, it does have a really nice look. No, I agree. But going back to the, the storyline of the film, yeah, Michelle Flynn, she offers to hire Erickson finally. And it's it's pretty much you get for about five minutes. He's him hawing where he's on the verge of declining. But it's when one of the children, it's it's kind of weird how this all plays out. So, yeah, he's him hawing about about whether or not he wants to do and he's leaning towards declining. But then right then and there at that moment, it's when one of the children who lives in the village in which he resides, he is struck by a mine and loses his leg at that moment. And that is what gets Erickson to decide to assist in helping Flynn out and finding these mines and, you know, seeing what's up with them all. Yeah. Well, I, I don't have problems with that. Like I said, I like, or they, they, they use intercutting a lot with his, his own personal trauma and not probably not necessary. Even you could have just shown him holding that kid. You know, I think the visual similarities are were enough, but that's fine. No, uh, it it works. Yeah, it, it, it gives him re a reasonable character motivation. It's not like you know when the bomb goes off or the mine goes off in the helicopter right right after she goes. Oh, let me go get my jacket. Like it's, it's incredibly telegraphed and clunky. But I think that the the child holding the child thing. Yeah, works. yeah. Now, I, I agree. And they also meet up. So this is the second scene. So it's interesting. Yeah, Bruce Payne, he's really, I mean, if you really think about it, he's really only in like, what, three scenes in this film. Two of those scenes, he's a good guy. The third scene, he's the bad guy. And <laughs> they meet up with him. So this is Dr. Yeah. Hopper. And he's now apparently running the hospital and the ER for the citizens of the village. And this is where the boy who loses his leg is, is sent. And I don't know, this is where I just don't understand it because he plays it, Bruce Payne plays it like a, a regular doctor. He seems like a genuinely good guy. And I just, I don't, narratively, I don't understand. Is there something that he says? I'm, I, I've seen this three times too, and I feel like I've missed it every time or, or he explains why, in addition to being a doctor, he is also a, a terrorist. Yeah, no, and they, and they, we haven't gotten there yet, but yeah, there's a lot of problems with that. And before we get to that, you know, we do get a couple fairly impressive action sequences. I think this is when the film really kicks in. I mean, at first we got a few, you know, decent, you know, kind of action sequences, but it's really at this point where we we're fine. We're getting a chase at this point. Erickson and Flynn, they're scoping out a field. They happen to find an A6, and as they're attempting to disarm it, Jaeger and his associates begin opening fire on Erickson and Flynn. And so Erickson and Flynn, they get in their Jeep and they start pretty much running from the helicopter that is chasing them. And 
again, I, I love this. I, I Like I said, I missed the aspect that he was a former Special Forces guy, but I love this because he is such a crack shot with the gun. There's a helicopter chasing them, firing a machine gun at them, and he just has a single a single pistol, and yeah, he's just, like I said, he's a crack shot, and he's just picking them off as they're in a helicopter. It's great. Well, not to mention uh, Claire, Claire Stansfield in that scene, she whips out a gun and just starts blasting yeah. away at the helicopter immediately, and it's great. I love that, and I love that she takes charge and, and drives it. it. It should be noted that this is a a movie made at a time where I don't know. There's still not a lot of women uh, badasses on the screen, right? Like there's some small screen stuff. Like I said, she was on Xena and whatnot, but she's not really she's not like sexual. No, not at this all. Movie, and I think uh, it's. It's always nice to see, like, in a, you know, watch something that's pre two thousand ten or something that you're like, oh, okay, yeah, they let her do her thing, and you know, she she gets to drive, in fact, in the scene. But yeah, I love that uh, Dolph just jumps out, and he I think he takes two shots at the helicopter, and the second one hit pegs the guy that's shooting at him, and he falls on the hood of the jeep. That yeah, awesome. no, no, and. And I want to ask you real quick, because we get this music that's played multiple times in the film. Anytime there's there's any bit of any little bit of melancholy in the film. For example, the next scene, we find out Erickson and Flynn, they make it back to their village and they find it all decimated and burnt. Many villagers are injured. Eric's friend has been killed in the assault. And it's it's a pretty sad scene to watch. And this. this Angolan African music is played. It seems like it's it's kind of the repeated tune that's played throughout the film, and it just kind of comes in in these kind of sad moments. What do you think about the film, or excuse me, about the music being played in this film, considering it is an action film, but at the same time one that's trying to make a statement? Well, most of the time there there's a, a score that I feel is too low tempo for the, low tempo for the action, but the that, that kind of wailing theme that you're yeah. talking about, I it actually startled me. I like it. it. I thought that they weren't doing that until around Gladiator, which is like a couple years later, I think. And so I, I was a little startled, but you know, that's the kind of thing it, it works for me. I like those African films where they do, or African set films where they do that. They use the uh, the local flavor to sort of give that aspect films uh i brought up ghost in the darkness that's another movie that does it and i like that i love, I love that well and it certainly puts you it's in the film different it's very alien to me yeah no it, it definitely yeah well it's very different for me so i'm, I'm just a white kid from the suburbs so oh yeah well i mean yeah i mean this is this film has taken place in another part of the world that unfortunately i don't think i'll ever get to see and so you know the 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 music that is that is played it 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 helps transport me there as as well as it can do and so yeah i i I agree with you there well that's that's the that's the magic of movie yeah but i don't know you know you're talking about earlier um i don't know i was just looking at a a screenshot this movie there's a part uh, i think it's after the somewhere after the the village thing actually somewhere after where you're talking about, but there's a part where Dolph Lundgren is right before he puts his hat on back in his place. And I was like, yeah, he is super. Young he guy. is. So. Yeah, no, he is. I mean, he, the, the guy is still physically fit. And obviously that the trailer for Creed two was released the other day, which I am counting down the days for, but yeah, he is so still physically fit. But if you look at him 
you know, now compared to then, yeah, he is considerably younger. I mean, because this was, it's, it's hard to believe. I mean, gosh, I'm, I'm feeling old now. It makes me feel really old. But yeah, 1998, that was a while ago, man. 20 years ago, <laughs> this film came out. I mean, it's, yeah. it makes, it makes me realize how old I've gotten. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but, uh, that's, that's, uh, right after that though, like they're talking and when he puts that hat on, I, I know you're thinking Indiana Jones, but I'm thinking that's Clint Eastwood. When he gets, he, you know, he's keeping his, he keeps his eyes covered with the brim. When he's talking. This is when he gets such a cool one liner here where he's, he's looking at his son's oh. grave and he says, you be a good boy. Daddy's going to work. I mean, I feel oh. that line right there is worth the price of admission in this film, or excuse me, is worth the dollar ninety nine I paid to rent this back in nineteen ninety nine. So, <laughs> well, it's a it's a good little moment. It's odd too because it's a uh, it's almost out of place in the scenes around it, but it's one of those things where you you want and kind of need that moment in the movie to propel it because you're like, okay, now it's time. It's like in uh, Red Scorpion. Right before the action starts at the end, he he just says, uh, "Let's make yeah. a mess," and it's it's exactly like that where you just got okay. Now it's a Dolph moment. Now it's a Dolph movie. Oh, here's yeah. what I wonder about it, and I don't know if you would agree or anything, but you know, it's it scenes like what we have earlier, you know, with the music and everything that we're talking about. You know, I, I'd say this film is more of a drama than anything else. But then there are these moments where, you know, Lundgren is saying, you be a good boy. Daddy's going to go to work. And at this point, this is where he goes on a full-on assault with his shotgun and he just starts kicking ass. Mm -hmm. And so do you think, and I'm just throwing this out there, but there's these moments where they feel the need to make it more of an action picture. And I wonder if maybe the script was there with New Image and New Image said, okay, we can get Dolph Lundgren for this role. Well, if Dolph Lundgren is in this film, it suddenly needs to become an action picture. So we need to have so many requisite action sequences and one-liners like this. I kind of wonder if these scenes, the action scenes I'm, I'm referring to, were in the initial script. Because like you said, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't fully gel for me. You know, you can, you can sense that there's a little bit of disjointedness here. Well, definitely. You know, I, that's what I said earlier. It's a... Uh... It's at least three different movies, yeah. and it definitely has that that feel of like the the action scenes don't necessarily feel like an afterthought. I feel like a considerable amount of the budget went to them. There's so many fireball explosions, and there's even a part where a uh, the beginning where he's running and they're dropping a truck behind him. Like it's like a crane must have dropped that truck behind Dolph Lundgren as he ran, and then it blew up. That's a that's that's. There's budget. There's oh, yeah. money in that. So it's it almost feels like somebody had an idea for a drama, and they want they had a statement to make about mines, and then there was a mystery script, and then they got Dolph Lundgren, and they said, "Oh yeah, I think you're right. I think that's what it is. They they wanted to be an action movie then, since they have Dolph, even though I think this stuff in the beginning of the movie is fun as that action is. I love him on the tank shooting." m60 at everybody it's not it doesn't really work in the film's favor to be there well and let me let me ask you this do you think that this film brought much awareness to the situation of landmines in africa <laughs> <Definitely> because <not. laughs> i think that's 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 the intent 
right? I mean, I, I would like to think that was when this film was conceptualized and filmed. And I'd like to think also that one of the reasons why Dolph signed on for this was because he liked the idea of, of a social statement being made. And so, yeah, I, I wonder if, if that was kind of the hope of New Image when they put this out there, that it was going to bring awareness and get people to do something. But I don't think it, I don't think it did much for, for the cause. So, Well, Dolph has really thrown himself into the whole he really has. thing. And, you know, he, you sh- he should be really congratulated for that. But this film needed a, a kind of, um, I think the plot needed to be about how our own government was was bringing minds there. It needed to be about that because they try and sucker punch you at the end with the, that information, how the government didn't join the in on the ban or whatever it was. And that's the kind of thing that the movie should be. Yeah, I was going to say. If they wanted to really bring That final ass. text crawl at the end about how it pretty much says, in, in so many ways, America sucks because they did not they, they did not join this this uh this ban of sorts it really kind of drives home what what I think the intention was of the script probably more so in the initial phase when it was written yeah but going back to the film like I said it's okay so we're going back to uh the action side of the film, I guess. Uh, <laughs> Erickson, he does go to Jaeger's house with a shotgun. He's ready to take vengeance. He's pissed. Pretty cool shootout ensues. And we get a, I wouldn't say it's the best fight. They say it's more of a humorous fight than it is a cool fight. But uh, a, a fight breaks out between Erickson and just this big, dumb guy. The actor who they got to play the big, dumb guy in this scene. Yeah, so they get in this fight. And I love how Erickson, he's smoking a cigar before and after the shootout and before and after the fight. But this particular fight is interesting because the actor playing the big dumb guy, that guy's clearly not an actor. And it's almost like, it's almost like Keone Waxman and the editors, when they were filming these scenes, they got, what what made it in the film was a take that I don't think was meant. I mean, it's, it's, it's a really odd and weirdly disjointed scene. Uh, I, I think a, a maybe a good deal of this movie wasn't intended, but that's one of those. Um, I don't know. I I find it almost charming, <laughs> where when I see something like that in a movie, where you're like, yeah. okay, they tried. <laughs> well, and what they do try with, and that I do appreciate, is yeah, they have this John Woo esque shot of Dolph. He's sliding down the stairs, shooting dual guns. We talked about yeah. this earlier, and, and it's a pretty slick. It's a pretty cool scene. Again. I don't know if it really belongs in a film that 15 minutes later is going to be making these statements about how we need to bring awareness to landmines, but I'll admit they are, they are pretty badass scenes. So, yeah, well, they needed uh, to lean more one way than, than the other, but they, they kind of are trying to hit this middle ground that they can't reach. So you've got, got a John Woo, sliding down the stairs, shooting two guns, guy flies through a door, and then you have, you know, uh, m- minutes before that were scenes of, uh, you know, him walking out of, a, being all solemn about his friend dying. And it's just, it's very, I don't know, kind of yeah. disjointed. It really is. Yeah, well, Jaeger and his men do kidnap Michelle Flynn, and they have her tied up in a mine, so Erickson is now on a mission to rescue her. And we talked about the big reveal 
where we find out that Dr. Cecil Hopper, yeah, he's the one who's been masterminding the entire thing. And apparently, and they kind of do this in some, some throwaway dialogue when he and Erickson are battling. Apparently, yeah, he had planted all of those mines that they were sweeping at the beginning of the film. He obviously did not intend for Erickson's son to be caught in one of those mines. But yeah, those were all him. So apparently, because from the beginning of the film to currently, this has spanned five years, apparently he has been, what, running this hospital and planting these mines. It, it doesn't make sense. So he's planting these mines and killing or killing and then dismembering the people who he is fixing. I, I don't, I, I don't, <laughs> I, I don't understand it. So. Yeah. Well, I'm like, you're, he's setting mines out. Is he just not creating more work yeah. for himself or does he think that there are just no need for doctors? So he, he's trying to make more work. I don't, I, it's very odd. I don't get it. No. And you know, again, this is the editing. This is, I don't know if this is the directing or the editing, but you know, we get some pretty cool shootouts in these, uh, in, in the mines. We have, we have Dolph. He's rappelling down into the mine shaft on this rescue mission. And so, yeah, we get a really cool shootout, but there is one near the end inside the mine shaft. You can really tell Keone Waxman's direction at this time was pretty amateur because there's a shootout that's really poorly filmed. It's a, it's a wide shot and I'm, I wish I had gotten the exact minute of the film it's in, but it's in a wide shot and you can just see the guys coming in, almost waiting to take their turn to fire at Lundgren for him, you know, <laughs> so the Lundgren can blow them away. But I think some things, especially in those scenes could have been edited and tightened up a little bit. Maybe if anything, they just couldn't have done a wide shot, but they would have done just some closer up, you know, things, but it, it does not, it doesn't look very well. It looks like something that might have been made for TV. Well, it's a very odd sequence uh, that does include some really badass stuff because there's a moment in there where Dolph Lundgren, who has a, a little flashlight, a little tiny flashlight, um, there's two guys running down the, the mine shaft at him, and he stops for a second. He's looking all confused. And he shines it at, at shines that little tiny flashlight. He sticks it like right up next to his nose, and he's shining this flashlight down the shaft, like he doesn't see the guys that are ten feet away from him. It's and then he starts running. It's just yeah, very weird. <laughs> yeah, but you know when the film shifts to the outdoors once again, and we're out again in that in that sunny environment and everything. It, I, I kind of start to forgive a lot of that stuff because, yeah, the scene where Dolph commandeers this motorbike and he is able to use this motorbike to hop onto the train that Hopper is on. This is also the train that's transporting just stockpiles of the A6 landmine. I think this scene is pretty cool. And we have a really great fight that ensues where Dolph is hanging on the outside of the train. I mean, I, I said it before when, uh, when we broke down Hidden Assassin, but I think any film that is going to have an action sequence on a train. I always just think it looks cool. It adds, it adds such a sense of, uh, of style really and, and scope to your film. So this scene right here for being a direct to video film. And I'm going to throw this out there as well. Considering this came just a couple movies after the peacekeeper where peacekeeper had some terrible green screen. This is pretty refreshing and cool to see. What well, is it's a, uh, what's well, total John yeah. Wayne right there. But, I love uh I love this whole this whole sequence because it reminds me of Broken Arrow and then um I don't know if you play a lot of video games but uh have you played uh, Uncharted 2? No, I've heard of it, but no. 
oh my gosh, there's a there's a whole train sequence, and this is the progenitor. Like that is the most fam- famous part of that game, and it is it's a great part of that game. And th- this scene is when you watch it, you go, wow, this is this is a lot like Uncharted two. So and it has that um, almost video gamey feel to it. But yeah, I uh, I should mention there there's this other sequence in the mine when that I like when uh, Claire Stansfield escapes from her yeah. rounds. She just they have her tied up and then and she she takes her shot during the two seconds they're not looking and just takes the guy's gun and backs off. But yeah, uh, and we get some cool stuff here. And you know we already <laughs> kind of talked about it, but I'll bring it up again. So yeah, the uh, the final fight ensues between Erickson and Hopper. And yeah, he, he throws one of those landmines at Hopper, stabs him in the stomach before blowing him up. The train and the bridge also blow up. And yeah, we haven't really talked about it. We kind of mentioned it briefly, but yeah, but the, the explosion this, in this film, and these are all practical effects and they all look really, really cool, especially the, the explosion of the train and the bridge. Um, they really give that film that sense of scale that I think raises it up. A few notches above Peacekeeper. Well, if you're gonna do explosions in a movie, you know, do yeah. them live. They always oh, yeah. look better, without exception. Um, okay, Neman, there's there's some exception. I saw Mad Max Fury Road, and most of the explosions were added in digitally later. They're composites, and I was like, okay, uh, but most of the time, all you know, they're they're so they're so good. There's the, that that scene earlier where. Um, Michelle Flynn is driving the Jeep and the guy's shooting at them with the, some kind of grenade launcher. Uh, great, great explosions all throughout. And so then you have the big whopper of an explosion at the end of this one where they're on the train and a train exploding always looks cool. So yeah, and it is no. huge, huge explosion. There's like a helicopter shot of it. And it's they fantastic. saved the best explosion for the end of the film, which is exactly what they should have done. As you, as should. you should, yeah. And the yes. film ends where Erickson and the orphan boy who Hopper was holding hostage. Um, we haven't really talked about this yet, but there's the boy who who Dr. Hopper takes hostage with him. Uh, Erickson and this boy, they escape the explosion. They reunite with Flynn. Erickson and Flynn share a kiss. And Erickson, it, it appears that he now has this new makeshift family once again. So he almost kind of has a child to mm-hmm. replace the one that he lost earlier. So it ends on a pretty happy note. Yeah. And it, it, in a lot of ways, it's kind of similar. It really reminded me of a face off in a lot of ways face off. I'll, I'll say it right now. As much as I love face off, I never really liked the ending of how he magically just gets everything back. He even just gets a new little boy. Who's the exact same age as the little boy who he lost at the beginning of the film. Once again, it's one of those <laughs> things that I always felt was a little cheap, but in this film, I'm I'm forgiving it. It it works. Yeah, and and it, well, it's sort of uh, you know, it's they they leave it a little ambiguous as to how I know. that would even <laughs> they work. Do. Uh, of course, in in Face Off, you're like, I know. what? How, what? I know. Legal. What kind of life is that kid? Gonna, are you going to tell him about his dad yeah. eventually? Are you going to tell him that you <laughs> killed his biological dad and then adopted him because? Yeah. He killed your son? Like, no, it's okay because <laughs> no. he killed my son. Yeah, <laughs> that's a really I know it's weird it's one. it's very disturbing. You know, when I first saw it in night, it, you know, not to go off on a face off tangent, but it's funny when I first saw Face Off back in 1996. At the time, it was kind of touching. It was like, oh man, 
John Travolta got his life back. That is a great ending. And you start to think about it, and it's like, psychologically, that kid is really going to be messed up. Like, that's just, no, that's not cool. Like, yeah. Well, I thought, uh, I, I, first time I watched it, I'm like, this is a great touching ending. And then that kid comes around the corner, and I was, even then, I was like, what? Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> Oh, so, but you know, I, I like, um, I appreciate one, sweepers for the fact that it doesn't, it, it kind of, it kind of allows you to jump to those conclusions. Will Dolph and will Claire Stansfield adopt this kid? I don't know, but just the, the final shot of them together, we can kind of assume, okay, for at least for the next hour or two on their way back to the village, there'll be a family unit. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, he's not fully adopting him, you know, bringing him home and looking at his wife and saying, is yeah. this okay? This okay with you that we adopted this kid? Great. <laughs> you know? yeah. Are we, are we a couple now? I mean, there's a whole slew of things going on. You know, I guess you kissed me. So I guess yeah, I, I know. married. I don't know. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, what did you think of that explosion when he threw the, the mine? Did you think that maybe that that might have? I wondered that as well. I wondered that as well because I kind of thought to myself, like, I don't know, because when we did see the landmine explosions, I I guess I didn't think too much of it because anytime in the film when we saw a landmine blow up, it was it was a bomb that went off, but it wasn't a huge explosion. You know what I mean? Like it. So I kind of. What about the one that he killed Jaeger? True. Like, mo- like yeah, you're right, movie. and this and this is. I was like, wow, they they had to chase that fireball right. out of the mine, and now it's like, oh, he just ducks. Maybe that's because like, I was in a more enclosed location. <laughs> but yeah, I wondered that as well. I was like, you know, they're pretty close to that explosion, but yeah, I, I don't know. But look, as we wrap this one up, I'm I'm curious. I always like to do two. <laughs> I'm still thinking about Face Off, by the way. Just how problematic that film is. Oh, oh and no. the and the silly thing that they do with the fingers going down the face i still to this oh, yeah, oh like i still to this fault? day wonder <laughs> what what they were thinking with that but in any case <laughs> I'll, I'll say face off with you for for my next podcast and we will really break that one down so okay. <laughs> but you know fun. i always like to do two recommendations <laughs> one as a Dolph film and one as a film in general so brenton does sweepers get a recommend from you uh, as a Dolph film, I'd say sure. Um, cause once again, I think if you're a completionist and you want, or, or even half a completionist and you're, I think his interesting period where he was going through, you know, those, those really weird movies. I, I know you did silent trigger and hidden assassin. Those they're really the experimental eras. I like to call them. <laughs> and yeah, they're, and I think this is on the edge of that. This is leaning more towards like men of war kind of stuff, but you know, at least you know, men of war is definitely more successful at raising issues of uh, colonialism and whatnot. But this film is trying and, and and failing, but Dolph is really fun in it. So I'd say, yeah, for Dolph. But as a movie, movie, it will definitely leave you wanting if not outright yeah it, it is a little it is a little boring a little slow you know i think as a doll film it's a fun one to take a look at just because how it's a different type of character that he plays once again 
And I think anytime Dolph is going to attempt a new character with a different type of character arc, it's certainly worth a viewing. It's certainly worth a shot, especially if, like you said, you're even a half completionist. Is it one of his best films? No. But it's certainly, I don't think it's outright terrible. And I would say it's much more fun than The Peacekeeper. Peacekeeper is something that I really don't even remember watching and I don't see myself viewing again anytime soon. This one, while I don't see myself viewing this one again anytime soon, it, it has stayed with me a, a little bit more than Peacekeeper has, and I'm still able to think about it much more than, than I did Peacekeeper. As a film in general, I think I think it's worth a shot. You know, d- does it stand the test of time? No, not really. But it is cool seeing a socially conscious film done on a smaller scale. And the explosions, like we talked about, the African setting... The overall shooting locale, they add such a sense of scale to the entire proceedings that I think definitely raises it uh, quite a few notches above everything that he did in that direct-to-video era, especially when you look at some of his efforts that he did after the Stormcatcher and Agent Red. Oh boy, Agent Red. This one, I think, stands over those uh, exponentially. You know, I can't guarantee it's one that I'm going to be coming back to anytime soon, but it's worth checking out for a one-time only viewing. After that, I'd say you're probably good moving on. So, <laughs> Well, and if you want to see Dolph, this is sort of the beginning of his, um, when you when you watch him doing a, a kind yeah. of an Eastwood thing, which I think the, the apex or the final form of that is like Missionary Man, where which he directed, and he's, you know, and it's sort of, a remake of Pale Rider. So, you know, he's he's doing Eastwood here, and then eventually you get to Missionary Man, you go, oh, he's full Eastwood. So if you want to see, like, the beginnings of the genesis of that, then this is probably good for that. No, I completely agree with you. Well, before I let you go, go ahead and tell us a little bit about your website, All Out of Bubblegum, and anything else that you're working on. Okay, well, All Out of Bubblegum started years and years and years ago so that was a a, the idea at the time was uh i just wanted to it was a blog at first when i collect thoughts about movies in general and action movies because i felt that it was sort of a underserved genre Uh, nobody really i I didn't think anybody really dove into it i I was really into horror films but i felt you know that was saturated people were delving into that and analyzing it and nobody really talked about action so I started that and then I started this, uh, I started what was called kill counts. And the idea was to see how many, pe- uh, yeah, how many people, uh, any given actor killed. Oh, cool. <laughs> and yeah, that's, that's how it started. And, and Dolph was one of the big ones. He killed tons of people in his movies. So I was like, oh, let's get this. Uh, for the record, I think it was like 40. Yeah, I looked it up. Yeah, 44 for sweepers. No, it's just plenty because, you know, average is about 10 for people, for most people. Dolph's average. Real quick, don't you find it kind of amazing that in a film that he kills 44 people, he doesn't bother killing any of them with the landmines? Well, I take that back. He kills two of them with the landmines, but really no one else. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's it's very strange, but if they wanted to go with the theme, you know, what's uh, the specialist with Stallone where he's putting all these bombs on people and whatnot. That's what they could have been doing. 
here with Dolph, you could have known all sorts of things about explosives. You know, you're right. It's that was a big, it's been, and they established he's a demolitions expert. So yeah, they could have done some really cool, really mm -hmm. slick stuff there. You're right. So, How long did you know. say that uh, your website, All Out of Bubblegum, has been in existence now? Uh, Very cool. Eleven years. Yeah, and then um, and then I also ten years ago I started doing uh, video essays and what on on different action films, and you know I've been fighting YouTube just as long. You know, they'll take your stuff down. And I, I got I right now I'm um, so this year I've been doing a year of videos for every year at the action genre I started in 1960 and I'm moving up towards uh, the present and you know my 1962 is battling with YouTube right now and that's just how it goes you just wait until they say okay now people can do it right now it's blocked but just one yeah. of those things I just restart my, my channel earlier this year um, I had a few thousand subscribers and whatnot and then and it was gone so just got to start over. Wow, well, cool. Well, I certainly love your website. I've been to it quite a few times, and <laughs> you write extremely well. And so, yeah, it's it's a fun website to take a look at. And I really do appreciate you coming <laughs> on and discussing this one with me today. Like I said, I know that this is not your favorite Lundgren film, but the fact that you own so many of his films and you've seen so many of his films make you – <laughs> you're going to be coming back. So if you're ready and if you're willing, and if there's if there's something that you'd All like right. to uh, to chat uh, coming up in the filmography, please, um, I'd love to have you back on because it's just a ton of fun. Well, like uh, like you, I've seen uh, about everything he's ever been in. So. All right, cool. Well, hey, Brenton, thank you very, very much. To everyone out there who is listening, please feel free to rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you go to subscribe. We always appreciate the reviews. And we'll see you all next time on I Must Break, this podcast.